Chapter 5 of the History of Pendennis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Pendennis by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter 5 Mrs. Holler at Home. Without slackening her pace, Rebecca the mare galloped on to Baymouth, where Penn put her up at the inn stables and ran straightway to Mr. Foker's lodgings which he knew from the direction given to him by that gentleman on the previous day. On reaching these apartments, which were over a chemist's shop, whose stock of cigars and soda water went off rapidly by the kind patronage of his young inmates, Penn only found Mr. Spavin, Foker's friend and part-owner of the tandem which the latter had driven into Chatteris, who was smoking and teaching a little dog, a friend of his, tricks with a bit of biscuit. Penn's healthy red face, fresh from the gallop, compared oddly with the waxy, debauched little features of Foker's chum. The latter remarked it. Who's that man, he thought. He looks as fresh as a bean. His hands don't shake of a morning, I'd bet five to one. Foker had not come home at all. Here was a disappointment. Mr. Spavin could not say when his friend would return. Sometimes he stopped a day, sometimes a week. Of what college was Penn? Would he have anything? There was a very fair tap of ale. Mr. Spavin was enabled to know Pendennis's name, on the card which the latter took out and laid down. Perhaps Penn in these days was rather proud of having a card. And so the young men took leave. Then Penn went down the rock, and walked about on the sand, biting his nails by the shore of the much-sounding sea. It stretched before him, bright and immeasurable. The blue waters came rolling into the bay, foaming and roaring hoarsely. Penn looked them in the face with blank eyes, hardly regarding them. What a tide there was pouring into the lad's own mind at the time, and what a little power he had to check it. Penn flung stones into the sea, but it still kept coming on. He was in a rage at not seeing Foker. He wanted to see Foker. He must see Foker. Suppose I go on, on the Chatteris Road, just to see if I can meet him, Penn thought. Rebecca was saddled in another half hour, and galloping on the grass by the Chatteris Road, about four miles from Baymouth, the Clavering Road branches off, as everybody knows, and the mare naturally was for taking that turn, but, cutting her over the shoulder, Penn passed the turning, and rode on to the turnpike without seeing any sign of the black tandem and red wheels. As he was at the turnpike, he might as well go on, that was quite clear. So Penn rode to the George, and the hostler told him that Mr. Foker was there sure enough. He'd been a-making a tremendous row the night before, at drinking and a-singing and wanting to fight Tom the postboy, which I'm thinking he'd have had the worst of it, the man added with a grin. Have you carried up your master's hot water to shave with? He added in a very satirical manner to Mr. Foker's domestic, who here came down the yard bearing his master's clothes, most beautifully brushed and arranged. Show Mr. Pendennis up to him. And Penn followed the man at last to the apartment where, in the midst of an immense bed, Mr. Harry Foker lay reposing. The feather bed and bolsters swelled up all round Mr. Foker, so that you could hardly see his little sallow face and red silk nightcap. Hello, said Penn. Who goes there, brother quickly tell, sang out the voice from the bed. What, Pendennis again? Is your mamma acquainted with your absence? Did you sup with us last night? No, stop. Who supped with us last night, stupid? There was the three officers, sir, and Mr. Bingley, sir, and Mr. Costigan, sir, the man answered, who received all Mr. Foker's remarks with perfect gravity. Ah, yes, the cup and merry jest went round. We were chanted, and I remember I wanted to fight a postboy. Did I thrash him, stupid? 
"'No, sir. Fight didn't come off, sir,' said Stupid, still with perfect gravity. He was arranging Mr. Foker's dressing-case, a trunk, the gift of a fond mother without which the young fellow never travelled. It contained a prodigious apparatus in plate, a silver dish, a silver mug, silver boxes and bottles for all sorts of essences, and a choice of razors ready against the time when Mr. Foker's beard should come. "'Do it some other day,' said the young fellow, yawning and throwing up his little lean arms over his head. No, there was no fight, but there was chanting. Bingley chanted, I chanted, and the general chanted. Costigan, I mean. Did you ever hear him sing the little pig under the bed, Pen? The man we met yesterday, said Pen, all in a tremor. The father of, of the Fotheringay, the very man. Ain't she a Venus, Pen? Please, sir, Mr. Costigan's in the sitting room, sir, and says, sir, you asked him to breakfast, sir. Called five times, sir, but wouldn't wake you on no account and has been here since eleven o'clock, sir. How much is it now? One, sir. What would the best of mothers say, cried the little sluggard, if she saw me in bed at this hour? She sent me down here with a grinder. She wants me to cultivate my neglected genus. Hey, B, I say, Pen, this isn't quite like seven o'clock school, is it, old boy? And the young fellow burst out into a boyish laugh of enjoyment. Then he added, Go in and talk to the general whilst I dress. And I say, Pendennis, ask him to sing you the little pig under the bed. It's capital. Pen went off in great perturbation to meet Mr. Costigan, and Mr. Foker commenced his toilet. Of Mr. Foker's two grandfathers, the one from whom he inherited a fortune was a brewer, the other was an earl who endowed him with the most doting mother in the world. The Fokers had been at the Cistercian school from father to son, at which place our friend whose name could be seen over the playground wall on the public-house sign under which Foker's entire was painted, had been dreadfully bullied on account of his trade, his uncomely countenance, his inaptitude for learning and cleanliness, his gluttony and other weak points. But those who know how a susceptible youth, under the tyranny of his schoolfellows, becomes silent and a sneak, may understand how, in a very few months after his liberation from bondage, he developed himself as he had done, and became the humorous, the sarcastic, the brilliant Foker with whom we have made acquaintance. A dunce he always was, it is true, for learning cannot be acquired by leaving school and entering at college as a fellow commoner, but he was now, in his own peculiar manner, as great a dandy as he before had been a slattern, and when he entered his sitting-room to join his two guests, arrived scented and arrayed in fine linen, and perfectly splendid in appearance. General, or Captain Costigan, for the latter was the rank which he preferred to assume, was seated in the window with the newspaper held before him at arm's length. The captain's eyes were somewhat dim, and he was spelling the paper with the help of his lips, as well as of those bloodshot eyes of his, as you see gentlemen do to whom reading is a rare and difficult occupation. His hat was cocked very much on one ear, and as one of his feet lay up in the window seat, the observer of such matters might remark, by the size and shabbiness of the boots which the captain wore, that times did not go very well with him. Poverty seems as if it were disposed, before it takes possession of a man entirely, to attack his extremities first. The coverings of his head, feet, and hands are its first prey. All these parts of the captain's person were particularly rakish and shabby. As soon as he saw Penn, he descended from the window seat and saluted the newcomer, first in a military manner by conveying a couple of his fingers, covered with a broken black glove, to his hat, and then removing that ornament altogether. The captain was inclined to be bald, but he brought a quantity of lank iron-grey hair over his pate, 
and had a couple of wisps of the same falling down on each side of his face. Much whisky had spoiled what complexion Mr. Costigan may have possessed in his youth. His once handsome face had now a copper tinge. He wore a very high stock, scarred and stained in many places, and a dress coat tightly buttoned up in those places where the buttons had not parted company from the garment. The young gentleman to whom I had the honour to be introduced yesterday in the cathedral yard, said the captain with a splendid bow and wave of his hat. I hope to see you well, sir. I marked ye at the theatre last night during me daughter's performance, and missed ye on my return. I did but conduct her home, sir, for Jack Costigan, though poor, is a gentleman, and when I re-entered the house to pay me respects to me joyous young friend Mr. Foker, ye were gone. We had a jolly night of it, sir. Mr. Foker, the three gallant young dragoons, and your humble servant. Gad, sir, it put me in mind of one of our old knights when I bore his majesty's commission in the fighting hundredth and third, and he pulled out an old snuff-box, which he presented with a stately air to his new acquaintance. Arthur was a great deal too much flurried to speak. This shabby-looking buck was, was her father. The captain was perfumed with the recollections of the last night's cigars, and pulled and twisted the tuff on his chin as jauntily as any young dandy. "'I hope Miss F Miss Costigan is well, sir,' Penn said, flushing up. "'She she gave me greater pleasure than—' than I, I, I ever enjoyed at a play. I think, sir, I think she's the finest actress in the world, he gasped out. Your hand, young man, for ye speak from your heart, cried the captain. Thank ye, sir, an old soldier and a fond father thanks ye. She is the finest actress in the world. I've seen the Siddons, sir, and the O'Neill. They were great, but what were they compared to Miss Fotheringay? I do not wish she should assume her own name while on the stage. Me family, sir, are proud people, and the Costigans of Costigan Town think that an honest man who has borne Her Majesty's colours in the hundred and third would demean himself by permitting his daughter to earn her old father's bread. There cannot be a more honourable duty, surely, Penn said. Honourable, but Dad, sir, I'd like to see the man who said Jack Costigan would consent to anything dishonourable. I have a heart, sir, though I am poor. I like a man who has a heart. You have. I read it in your honest face and steady eye. And would you believe it, he added, after a pause, with a pathetic whisper, that that Bingley, who has made his fortune by me child, gives her but two guineas a week, out of which she finds herself in dresses, and which, added to me own small means, makes our all. Now the captain's means were so small as to be, it may be said, quite invisible, but nobody knows how the wind is tempered to shorn Irish lambs and in what marvellous places they find pasture. If Captain Costigan, whom I had the honour to know, would but have told his history, it would have been a great moral story, but he neither would have told it if he could, nor could if he would, for the captain was not only unaccustomed to tell the truth, he was unable even to think it, and fact and fiction reeled together in his muzzy, whiskified brain. He began life rather brilliantly, with a pair of colours, a fine person and legs, and one of the most beautiful voices in the world. To his latest day he sang with admirable pathos and humour those wonderful Irish ballads, which are so mirthful and so melancholy, and was always the first himself to cry at their pathos. Poor Coss, he was at once brave and maudlin, humorous and an idiot. Always good-natured and sometimes almost trustworthy. Up to the last day of his life he would drink with any man and back any man's bill, and his end was in a sponging house where the sheriff's officer, who took him, 
was fond of him. In his brief morning of life, Cos formed the delight of regimental messes, and had the honour of singing his songs, bacchanalian and sentimental, at the tables of the most illustrious generals and commanders-in-chief, in the course of which period he drank three times as much claret as was good for him, and spent his doubtful patrimony. What became of him subsequently to his retirement from the army is no affair of ours. I take it no foreigner understands the life of an Irish gentleman without money, the way in which he manages to keep afloat, the wind raising conspiracies in which he engages with heroes as unfortunate as himself, the means by which he contrives during most days of the week to get his portion of whisky and water. All these are mysteries to us inconceivable, but suffice it to say that through all the storms of life Jack had floated somehow, and the lamp of his nose had never gone out. Before he and Penn had had a half-hour's conversation, the captain managed to extract a couple of sovereigns from the young gentleman for tickets for his daughter's benefit, which was to take place speedily, and was not a bona fide transaction such as that of the last year, when poor Miss Fotheringay had lost fifteen shillings by her venture, which was an arrangement with the manager, by which the lady was to have the sale of a certain number of tickets, keeping for herself a large portion of the sum for which they were sold. Penn had but two pounds in his purse, and he handed them over to the captain for the tickets. He would have been afraid to offer more, lest he should offend the latter's delicacy. Costigan scrawled him an order for a box, lightly slipped the sovereigns into his waistcoat, and slapped his hand over the place where they lay. They seemed to warm his old sides. "'Faith, sir,' said he, "'the bullion's scarcer with me than it used to be, as is the case with many a good fellow.' I won six hundred of em in a single night, sir, when me kind friend, his royal highness the Duke of Kent, was in Gibraltar, and he straightway poured out to pen a series of stories regarding the claret drunk, the bets made, the races ridden by the garrison there, with which he kept the young gentlemen amused until the arrival of their host and his breakfast. Then it was good to see the captain's behaviour before the deviled turkey and the mutton chops. His stories poured forth unceasingly and his spirits rose as he chatted to the young men. When he got a bit of sunshine, the old Lazzarone basked in it. He prated about his own affairs and past splendour, and all the lords, generals, and lord lieutenants he had ever known. He described the death of his darling Bessie, the late Mrs. Costigan, and the challenge he had sent to Captain Shanty Clancy of the Slashes for looking rudely at Miss Fotheringay as she was on her kiara at the Phoenix and then he described how the captain apologised, gave a dinner at the Kildare Street where six of them drank twenty-one bottles of claret, etc. He announced that to sit with two such noble and generous young fellows was the happiness and pride of an old soldier's existence, and having had a second glass of Kurosawa, was so happy that he began to cry. Altogether we should say that the captain was not a man of much strength of mind, or a very eligible companion for youth. But there are worse men, holding much better places in life, and more dishonest, who have never committed half so many rogueries as he. They walked out, the captain holding an arm of each of his dear young friends, and in a maudlin state of contentment. He winked at one or two tradesmen's shops where possibly he owed a bill, as much as to say, See the company I'm in? Sure I'll pay you, my boy. And they parted finally with Mr. Foker at a billiard room, where the latter had a particular engagement with some gentlemen of Colonel Swallowtail's regiment. Penn and the shabby captain still walked the street together, the captain in his sly way making inquiries about Mr. Foker's fortune and station in life. Penn told him how Foker's father was a celebrated brewer, and his mother was Lady Agnes Milton, Lord Rochefield's daughter. 
The captain broke out into a strain of exaggerated compliment and panegyric about Mr. Foker, whose native aristocracy, he said, could be seen with the twinkling of an eye, and only served to adorn other qualities which he possessed, a foine intellect and a generous heart, in not one word of which speech did the captain accurately believe. Penn walked on, listening to his companion's prate, wondering, amused, and puzzled. It had not as yet entered into the boy's head to disbelieve any statement that was made to him, and being of a candid nature himself, he took naturally for truth what other people told him. Costigan had never had a better listener, and was highly flattered by the attentiveness and modest bearing of the young man. So much pleased was he with the young gentleman, so artless, honest, and cheerful did Penn seem to be, that the captain finally made him an invitation, which he very seldom accorded to young men, and asked Penn if he would do him the favour to enter his humble abode, which was near at hand, where the captain would have the honour of introducing his young friend to his daughter, Miss Fotheringay. Penn was so delightfully shocked at this invitation, and was so stricken down by the happiness thus suddenly offered to him, that he thought he should have dropped from the captain's arm at first, and trembled lest the other should discover his emotion. He gasped out a few incoherent words, indicative of the high gratification he should have in being presented to the lady for whose, for whose talent he had conceived such an admiration, such an extreme admiration, and followed the captain, scarcely knowing whither that gentleman led him. He was going to see her. He was going to see her. In her was the centre of the universe. She was the kernel of the world for Penn. Yesterday, before he knew her, seemed a period ever so long ago. A revolution was between him and that time, and a new world about to begin. The captain conducted his young friend to that quiet little street in Chatteris, which is called Prior's Lane, which lies in the ecclesiastical quarter of the town, close by Dean's Green and the Canon's Houses, and is overlooked by the enormous towers of the cathedral. There the captain dwelt modestly in the first floor of a low gabled house, on the door of which was the brass plate of Creed Taylor and Roadmaker. Creed was dead, however. His widow was a pew-opener in the cathedral hard by. His eldest son was a little scamp of a choir-boy, who played toss-halfpenny, led his little brothers into mischief, and had a voice as sweet as an angel. A couple of the latter were sitting on the doorstep, down which you went into the passage of the house, and they jumped up with great alacrity to meet their lodger, and plunged wildly, and rather to Penn's surprise, at the swallow-tails of the captain's dress-coat. For the truth is that the good-natured gentleman, when he was in cash, generally brought home an apple or a piece of gingerbread for these children, whereby the witty never pressed me for rent when not convenient, as he remarked afterwards to Penn, winking knowingly and laying a finger on his nose. Penn tumbled down the step, and as he followed his companion up the creaking old stair, his knees trembled under him. He could hardly see when he entered, following the captain, and stood in the room, in her room. He saw something black before him, and waving as if making a curtsy, and heard, but quite indistinctly, Costigan making a speech over him, in which the captain, with his usual magniloquence, expressed to Michild his wish to make her known to his dear and admirable young friend, Mr. Arthur Pindinis, a young gentleman of property in the neighbourhood, a person of refined mind, and enviable manners, and sincere love of poetry, and a man possessed of a feeling and affectionate heart. "'It is very fine weather,' Miss Fotheringay said in an Irish accent, and with a deep, rich, melancholy voice. "'Very,' said Mr. Pendennis. In this romantic way their conversation began, and he found himself seated on a chair and having leisure to look at the young lady.' 
She looked still handsomer off the stage than before the lamps. All her attitudes were naturally grand and majestical. If she went and stood up against the mantelpiece, her robe draped itself classically around her. Her chin supported itself on her hand. The other lines of her form arranged themselves in full harmonious undulations. She looked like a muse in contemplation. If she sat down on a cane-bottomed chair, her arm rounded itself over the back of the seat. Her hand seemed as if it ought to have a scepter put into it. The folds of her dress fell naturally around her in order, like ladies of honour, around a throne, and she looked like an empress. All her movements were graceful and imperial. In the morning you could see her hair was blue-black, her complexion of dazzling fairness, with the faintest possible blush flickering, as it were, in her cheek. Her eyes were grey, with prodigious long lashes, and as for her mouth, Mr. Pendennis has given me subsequently to understand that it was of a staring red colour, with which the most brilliant geranium, sealing-wax, or guardsman's coat, could not vie. And very warm, continued this empress and queen of Sheba, Mr. Penn again assented, and the conversation rolled on in this manner. She asked Costigan whether he had had a pleasant evening at the George, and he recounted the supper and the tumblers of punch. Then the father asked how she had been employing the morning. Bows came, said she, at ten, and we studied Ophelia. It's for the twenty-fourth, when I hope, sir, we shall have the honour of seeing you. Indeed, indeed you will, Mr. Pendennis cried, wondering that she should say Ophelia, and speak with an Irish inflection of voice naturally, who had not the least Hibernian accent on the stage. "'I've secured em for your benefit, dear,' said the captain, tapping his waistcoat pocket wherein lay Penn's sovereigns, and winking at Penn with one eye at which the boy blushed. "'Mr. The gentleman's very obliging,' said Mrs. Haller. "'My name is Pendennis,' said Penn, blushing. "'I, I hope you'll, you'll remember it.' His heart thumped so as he made this audacious declaration that he almost choked in uttering it. Pen Dennis, she answered slowly, and looking him full in the eyes with a glance so straight, so clear, so bright, so killing, with a voice so sweet, so round, so low, that the word and the glance shot Pen through and through and perfectly transfixed him with pleasure. I never knew the name was so pretty before, Pen said. Tis a very pretty name, Ophelia said. Pent Weasel's not a pretty name. Remember, Papa, when we were on the Norwich circuit, young Pentweasel, who used to play second old men and married Miss Rancy, the Columbine? They're both engaged in London now at the Queen's. They get five pounds a week. Pentweasel wasn't his real name. Twas Judkin gave it him. I don't know why. His name was Harrington. That is, his real name was Potts, father a clergyman. Very respectable. Harrington was in London and got in debt. You remember... He came out in Falkland to Mrs. Bunce's Julia. And a pretty Julia she was, the captain interposed. A woman of fifty and a mother of ten children. Tis you ought to have been Julia, or my name's not Jack Costigan. I didn't take the leading business then, Miss Fotheringay said modestly. I wasn't fit for it till Bowes taught me. True for you, my dear, said the captain, and bending to Pendennis he added, reduced in circumstances, sir. I was for some time a fencing-master in Dublin. There's only three men in the empire could touch me with a foil once, but Jack Costigan's getting old and stiff now, sir, and my daughter had an engagement at the theatre there, and twas there that my friend Mr. Bowes, who saw her capabilities, and is an uncommon acute man, gave her lessons in the dramatic art, and made her what you see. What have ye done since Bowes went, Emily? Sure, I've made a poi. 
Emily said with perfect simplicity. She pronounced it poi. If you'll try it at four o'clock, sir, say the word, said Costigan gallantly. That girl, sir, makes the best veal and ham pie in England, and I think I can promise ye a glass of punch of the right flavour. Penn had promised to be at home to dinner at six, but the rascal thought he could accommodate pleasure and duty in this point, and was only too eager to accept this invitation. He looked on with delight and wonder, whilst Ophelia busied herself about the room and prepared for the dinner. She arranged the glasses, and laid and smoothed the little cloth, all which duties she performed with a quiet grace and good humour, which enchanted her guest more and more. The poi arrived from the bakers in the hands of one of the little choir-boy's brothers at the proper hour, and at four o'clock Penn found himself at dinner, actually at dinner, with the greatest tragic actress in the world, and her father, with the handsomest woman in all creation, with his first and only love, whom he had adored ever since when, ever since yesterday, ever since forever. He ate a crust of her making, he poured her out a glass of beer, he saw her drink a glass of punch, just one wine-glassful, out of the tumbler which she mixed for her papa. She was perfectly good-natured, and offered to mix one for Pendennis too. It was prodigiously strong. Pen had never in his life drunk so much spirits and water. Was it the punch, or the punch-maker, who intoxicated him? During dinner, when the captain, whom his daughter treated most respectfully, ceased prattling about himself and his adventures, Pen tried to engage the following gay in conversation about poetry, and about her profession. He asked her what she thought of Ophelia's madness, and whether she was in love with Hamlet or not. "'In love with such an odious wretch as that stunted manager of a Bingley?' she bristled with indignation at the thought. Penn explained it was not of her he spoke, but of Ophelia of the play. "'Oh, indeed, if no offence was meant, none was taken. But as for Bingley, indeed, she did not value him. Not that glass of punch.' Penn next tried her on Kotzebue. Kotzebue? Who is he? The author of the play in which she had been performing so admirably. She did not know that. The man's name at the beginning of the book was Thompson, she said. Penn laughed at her adorable simplicity. He told her of the melancholy fate of the author of the play, and how Sand had killed him. It was for the first time in her life that Miss Costigan had ever heard of Mr. Kotzebue's existence, but she looked as if she was very much interested, and her sympathy sufficed for her honest Penn. And in the midst of this simple conversation, the hour and a quarter which poor Penn could afford to allow himself passed away only too quickly. And he had taken leave, he was gone, and away on his rapid road homewards on the back of Rebecca, she was called upon to show her mettle in the three journeys which she made that day. What was that he was talking about, the madness of Hamlet and the theory of the great German critic on the subject? Emily asked of her father. "'Deed, then I don't know, Milly dear,' answered the captain." We'll ask Bose when he comes. Anyhow, he's a nice, fair-spoken, pretty young man, the lady said. How many tickets did he take of you? Faith, then, he took six, and gave me two guineas, Milly, the captain said. I suppose them young chaps is not too flush of coin. He's full of book-learning, Miss Fotheringay continued. Kutzebue, he he, what a droll name indeed now. And the poor fellow killed by sand, too. Did ye ever hear of such a thing? "'I'll ask Bose about it, Papa, dear.' "'A queer death, sure enough,' ejaculated the captain, "'and changed the painful theme. "'Tis an elegant mare the young gentleman rides,' "'Costigan went on to say, "'and a grand breakfast entirely that young Mr. Foker gave us. "'He's good for two private boxes "'and at least twenty tickets, I should say,' cried the daughter, 
a prudent lass who always kept her fine eyes on the main chance. I'll go bail of that, answered the papa. And so their conversation continued a while, until the tumbler of punch was finished, and their hour of departure soon came too, for at half-past six Miss Fotheringay was to appear at the theatre again, whither her father always accompanied her, and stood, as we have seen, in the side scene watching her, and drank spirits and water in the green room with the company there. How beautiful she is! thought Penn, cantering homewards. How simple and how tender! How charming it is to see a woman of her commanding genius busying herself with the delightful, the humble offices of domestic life, cooking dishes to make her old father comfortable, and brewing drink for him with her delicate fingers. How rude it was of me to begin to talk about professional matters, and how well she turned the conversation. By the way, she talked about professional matters herself. But then, with that fun and humour, she told the story of her comrade, Pintweasel, as he was called. There is no humour like Irish humour. Her father is rather tedious, but thoroughly amiable, and how fine of him giving lessons in fencing after he quitted the army, where he was the pet of the Duke of Kent. Fencing! I should like to continue my fencing, or I shall forget what Angela taught me. Uncle Arthur always liked me to fence. He says it is the exercise of a gentleman. Hang it, I'll take some lessons of Captain Costigan. Go along, Rebecca. Up the hill, old lady. Pendennis, Pendennis. How she spoke the word. Emily, Emily, how good, how noble, how beautiful, how perfect she is. Now, the reader who has had the benefit of overhearing the entire conversation which Penn had with Miss Fotheringay can judge for himself about the powers of her mind and may perhaps be disposed to think that she has not said anything astonishingly humorous or intellectual in the course of the above interview. She has married and taken her position in the world as the most spotless and irreproachable lady since, and I have had the pleasure of making her acquaintance, and must certainly own, against my friend Penn's opinion, that his adored Emily is not a clever woman. The truth is, she had not only never heard of Kotzebue, but she had never heard of Farqua or Congreve, or any dramatist in whose plays she had not a part, and of these dramas she only knew the part which concerned herself. A wag once told her that Dante was born in Algiers, and asked her which Dr. Johnson wrote first, Irene, or every man in his humour. But she had the best of the joke, for she had never heard of Irene or every man in his humour, or Dante, or perhaps Algiers. It was all one to her. She acted what little Bose told her. When he told her to sob, she sobbed. Where he told her to laugh, she laughed. She gave the tirade or the repartee without the slightest notion of its meaning. She went to church and goes every Sunday with a reputation finally intact and was and is as guiltless of sense as of any other crime. But what did our pen know of these things? He saw a pair of bright eyes and he believed in them, a beautiful image, and he fell down and worshipped it. He supplied the meaning which her words wanted and created the divinity which he loved. Was Tatiana the first who fell in love with an ass or Pygmalion the only artist who had gone crazy about a stone? He had found her, he had found what his soul thirsted after. He flung himself into the stream and drank with all his might. Let those say who have been thirsty once, how delicious that first draught is. As he rode down the avenue towards home, Penn shrieked with laughter as he saw the reverend Mr. Smirk, once more coming demurely away from Fair Oaks on his pony. Smirk had dawdled and stayed at the cottages on the way, and then dawdled with Laura over her lessons and then looked at Mrs. Pendennis's gardens and improvements until he had perfectly bored out that lady. 
and he had taken his leave at the very last minute without that invitation to dinner which he fondly expected pen was full of kindness and triumph what pick up and sound he cried out laughing come along back old fellow and eat my dinner i have had mine i have had mine but we will have a bottle of the old wine and drink her health smack poor smirk turned the pony's head around and jogged along with arthur his mother was charmed to see him in such high spirits and welcomed mrs smirk for his sake when arthur said he had forced the curate back to dine he gave a most ludicrous account of the play of the night before and of the acting of bingley the manager in his rickety hessians and the enormous mrs bingley as the countess in rumpled green satin and a polish cap he mimicked them and delighted his mother in little laura who clapped her hands with pleasure and mrs holler said mrs pendennis she's a stunner ma'am pen said laughing and using the words of his revered friend mr foker a what arthur asked the lady what is a stunner arthur cried laura in the same voice so he gave them a queer account of mr foker and how he used to be called vats and grains and by other contumelious names at school and how he was now exceedingly rich and a fellow commoner at st boniface but gay and communicative as he was mr penn did not say one syllable about his ride to chatteris that day or about the new friends whom he had made there when the two ladies retired penn with flashing eyes filled up two great bumpers of madeira and looking smirkful in the face said here's to her here's to her said the curate with a sigh lifting the glass and emptying it so that his face was a little pink when he put it down pen had even less sleep that night than on the night before in the morning and almost before dawn he went out and saddled that unfortunate rebecca himself and rode her on the downs like mad again love had roused him and said awake pendennis i am here that charming fever that delicious longing and fire and uncertainty he hugged them to him. He would not have lost them for all the world. End of chapter 5